Uh, my name is Matt. Uh, it's nice to see you. We're going to do things slightly differently this morning. I'm going to be speaking for us on the passage that Lauren's already talked about. But what we normally do is we normally um, have our Bible read, uh, and then after we've had the Bible reading, uh, we, we jump up and talk about it for a while. But uh, before we do that, I wanted to flag this morning that we have a particularly uh, sort of intense part of the Bible to look at today. Uh, if you're new at Trinity, we, we normally like to go through books of the Bible. Uh, we're going through the book of Genesis at the moment, the very first book of the Bible. Uh, we don't always necessarily go through every single chapter or verse. You know, I'm, I'm trying to move fast enough so we can get through 50 chapters of Genesis and get to the end of it at some point uh, and get a picture of what the whole uh, book is about. But uh, what we don't like doing is we don't like picking and choosing parts of the Bible in a way that uh, means we only ever end up looking at the easy bits, if that makes sense. Because uh, there are hard bits in the Bible. We don't want to pretend that uh, the hard bits aren't there. There are bits that are maybe offensive or controversial. Uh, and today is certainly, I think, one of those harder parts of the Bible, as uh, Lauren has alluded to. It's a story. It's a story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, they're two ancient towns. Uh, the Bible describes them as wicked places. If you haven't heard the story of Sodom and Gomorrah before, uh, you might be a bit shocked by some of the things we're going to read about. Uh, we're going to read about violence. Uh, we're going to read about sex, we're going to read about rape, abuse, uh, and by the end of the story, uh, we're going to read about God deciding that he needs to do something about the wickedness and deciding to send down burning sulfur on the city and destroying the whole area. Uh, so, it's going to be a little bit different, it's going to be a little bit more intense than normal, uh, a bit more intense than some of the stuff we normally look at, we're, we're going to talk about all this sort of stuff and um, try and think about what it means for us and uh, try and get our heads around it. But uh, one thing, especially if you're new, it is worth saying we don't, you know, we don't often talk about this sort of thing, but uh, we don't do this sort of thing every week. But uh, as you go through the Bible, sometimes these harder passages do come up, and we would rather talk about them than pretend they're not there. So uh, we're not trying to hide them away. Uh, we're going to have a look at the story. We're going to talk about it and think about what it means. So uh, in a second, Rick is going to come and do the reading for us. Uh, since I'm up there, up here, why don't I just give you a very little quick bit of context? Uh, just as we get into the reading, we can kind of know where we're up to. Uh, the book of Genesis, it's the first book in the Bible. Uh, the book's all about answering our big questions about the world, about God, about what it means to trust God. And we're in uh, the second big section of the book. Uh, Genesis says in chapter eleven twenty-seven that this section is all about the generations of terror. It's about the children of terror. Terror is just a guy, uh, but one of terror's sons is Abraham. We've been looking particularly at Abraham uh, for a number of weeks now. But there's another one of Terah's descendants who's kind of been a little bit more in the background of the story. His name is Lot. He's, uh, he's Abraham's nephew. A good way to remember Lot's name is that he's a lot of trouble. Uh, he gets himself captured. Abraham has to go and rescue him. Uh, back in chapter 13, he decided to go live near this place called Sodom. Uh, and even back, back then, we kind of knew that was a bit of a red flag. Sodom's a bit of a, a nasty place, but uh, Lot wants to go and live there anyway because there's nice fields there, there's nice land. Uh, he wants to trust God, uh, but at the same time, he kind of also wants to go and experience some of the best stuff that the world has to offer. He's kind of got a bit of a problem deciding whether it's best to live God's way or to live uh, the way of the world. So he kind of likes to have a foot in both camps. Uh, and we'll see that he's still struggling with that in our story today. So Lot's living in Sodom. We haven't heard from him for a few chapters. We've been focusing on Abraham and Sarah. Uh, if you've been with us, they've been trying to trust in God while they wait for God's promise of a child to be fulfilled. And last week, finally, uh, these three visitors came along. God and two angels came along uh, and they told Abraham and Sarah that it was only one more year they had to wait to have their child. Uh, and those three visitors who have visited Abraham and Sarah, 
uh, they're now going to head towards Sodom today, and that's when things uh, get a little bit nasty. So I might pray, then I'll invite Rick to come and read for us. Uh, dear Father God, we thank you for your word. We know that your word is is sharp. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. It divides uh, even to soul and spirit. And we uh, we feel like this morning that uh, your word may hurt a little bit. Uh, sometimes your word is harder to read. And I do just pray for each one of us, uh, particularly for any of us who does find uh, what we're about to read a bit more confronting. Uh, I pray that you would show us why this part of the Bible matters, uh, that you show us what it means, that we would um, be willing to do some good thinking about it and try and work it out properly. Uh, but we do pray that even through a hard part of the Bible, uh, you might teach us about you uh, and help us to trust you more. Be with us as we hear from your word now. Amen. Thank you, Rick. Oh, we'll get this back up. Absolutely. <clears throat> the two arra- uh, sorry, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men of every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, Where are the men who came with you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them, and shut the door behind him. And he said, My friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do whatever you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of, their, get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he means to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against the people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went outside and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters 
who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives, don't look back, and don't stop anywhere on the plain. Flee to the mountains, or you will be swept away. But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please, your servant has found favour in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This is disaster. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, very well, I will grant your request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. This is why the town was called Zor. By the time Lot reached Zor, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulphur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew the cities and the entire plain destroying all the living in the cities and all the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, towards the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. I wonder how you feel uh, hearing that story read out. It's a fair bit going on, isn't there? What we're going to do, we're going to try and understand the passage and get our heads around it. Uh, try and make sense of what's going on. I, I've got an outline here. You can uh, you can look this up on the Sunday Hub if you'd like to sort of have it in front of you. But uh, this is kind of how I think the story works. I think uh, the story is about these two angels uh, and they come to judge the two cities, Sodom and Gomorrah. And then at the end, there are three reactions to what's happened. Uh, so I want to think about it uh, in this order. Two angels, what they come to do. Uh, two cities, what we can learn from their sins and their failings. Uh, and then the three reactions at the end. And I think... Really, that's probably where the rubber most hits the road for us. So uh, let's, let's think about the two angels first. Uh, if you notice right at the start of our passage, uh, it starts off with the two angels. Uh, they arrive in Sodom. But actually, let's just jump back even a little bit further because uh, back in chapter 18, we, did, we didn't look at this last week, but um, we actually already know the reason why the angels are coming to Sodom. Uh, it's chapter 18, verses 20 and 21. Uh, the Lord's talking to Abraham Uh, And he says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin is so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. Then the men who are the angels go after Sodom. So the angels 
visit Sodom because, why did they come to Sodom? Because there's an outcry. Because people have been crying out to God, this place is evil, do something, please. We don't know who these people are that are crying out, but you know, Sodom is the sort of city where lots of people are exploited, so it could be those who have been mistreated, abused, killed. They're, they're crying out to God for justice, and God has heard their cries. He says so many people are crying out about this place. You know, The outcry is so great. If it was an email, his prayer inbox would just be getting inundated with message after message after message. So God has come to see for himself. And what we see, even, even right as the story begins, uh, is a very important concept for our whole story, actually. And that is that uh, God's going to come. He's going to come and judge. He's going to come and judge for himself whether the city really is wicked and if something does need to be done. Uh, and sometimes we think of God's judgment and we think of then God's mercy. And we kind of think of God's judgment and God's mercy as kind of two opposite ends of a, of a scale, two, two totally different things, judgment and mercy. But actually, what we see here is that God is simultaneously already doing both. He's going to come and do something. He's going to come and judge. But he's also coming because of his mercy. He's coming as a mercy to those who have been mistreated. If you follow me. All these people who have been crying out. He loves them. He cares about them. He can't just ignore their cries. And so he decides he needs to finally show mercy to them. And to show mercy, he needs to come and judge. God is going to show mercy to those who have been mistreated and the way he shows mercy is to judge the wickedness, mercy and judgment going together. Let me give you just a different sort of illustration on this just for a minute, um, just so we really make sure we understand this properly. If you know a little bit about me, you know that I'm a, I'm a big sport fan and uh, if there's one sport I love more than any, uh, any other, it's soccer, football, uh, the round ball game. And uh, one of the criticisms about football, fair enough, is... Um, uh, the rolling over and you know trying to get a free kick and rolling around on the ground trying to get your opponent sent off. You can see the guy at the back sort of, you know, is probably a little less hurt than he's actually letting on. Uh, a part of the reason you get this in soccer is that it's just it's a very tense game and one kind of moment can change the whole game. And if you've ever been to a soccer game, uh, you know you can come with me and watch an Adelaide United one game one day. Uh, there's yelling, you know, there's shouting at the referee, there's complaining about decisions, uh, and that's just me. You should see everyone else, but. Um, <laughs> What you really want from a ref at a soccer game is justice. If someone gets a free kick because someone else is just rolling around on the ground, you say, hey, hang on, hang on a minute, that's, that's not fair. If someone does a bad tackle and doesn't get a yellow card, you say, oh, come on, ref, what about justice? <coughs> and um, sometimes the referees get a hard time, but uh, imagine for a second what a game of football would be like without a referee. Uh, not just, you know, not just friends kicking a ball around in the park, but imagine a really important high-level game without a referee. What would happen? You know, anyone can do whatever they want. There's no one to step in and put things right. There's no red cards. You could injure another player and then just keep on playing. I don't think it would actually be that good a game, would it? It would be chaos. Complete and utter chaos. Injuries, injustice, chaos, pain. No. We need there to be a judge, don't we? You need a judge who's going to step in and bring about justice. And I think it's the same when we think about our world. A world without justice is a world of chaos. A world where people are mistreated and victimised and cry out for justice and it's never going to come. We don't want a world like that. We want justice. Think of uh, the court case earlier this year around the George Floyd 
uh, murder, that whole situation. Think of the celebration when uh, Floyd's killer was found guilty. People said, this is justice. A world without justice, a world where evil is unchecked, uh, I don't think that's a world we want to live in. And yet when we come to talk about God, often then we find people who say, I don't want to believe in a God who judges. I don't want to believe in a God who could punish people, who could bring about justice. But actually, I, the more I think about it, the more I think, I don't think I'd want to live in a world with a God who doesn't judge. I don't think I'd want to live in a world where a God who just sits back and hears people's cries and decides that he's never going to put things right. It's not easy to read about God's judgment, but ultimately I think it is easier to trust a God if we know that he's a God who's going to act. And so God has sent these two angels to Sodom and Gomorrah, and he's decided that he's going to act, he's going to do something. He's going to come check out the cities for himself, uh, make a judgment, decide on what he's going to do. And he does that by sending in these two angels. Let's have a think about the two cities then, uh, and what the angels find when they get to the cities. Uh, Things actually start okay when the angels arrive at Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, the two angels, let's get the, get the passage back up. Uh, the two angels arrived at Sodom. It's in the evening. Uh, Lot was there sitting in the gateway of the city. Uh, the first people the angels come to when they, they enter into the city is Lot. Uh, by the way, last time we heard about Lot, he was just living kind of near Sodom, and now he's right there sitting at the gate of the city. So he seems to be getting more and more pulled into this place. Uh, when he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. Uh, my lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can watch, wash your feet, spend the night, go on your way early in the morning. And, and I think there's kind of a little bit of an interplay here where they're maybe trying to sort of do that maybe kind of fake, not really wanting hospitality and playing that game. No, no, we can spend the night in the, in the square. Uh, but he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So, so far, things are looking okay. Lot's brought the angels in, give them a, given them a meal. That's not quite the sort of meal, if you, were, if you were here last week, it's not quite the sort of meal that Abraham gives the two angels a chapter earlier, but it's, you know, it's okay. There's no yeast in the bread, it's a bit more rushed, uh, but it's okay. Uh, but after dinner, uh, this is when things uh, really, really go bad. Uh, verse 4, before they'd all gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. Wow. The story takes a very dark turn very quickly, doesn't it? This is, this is shocking. An angry mob, older men, the younger men too, probably even teenagers. We're talking about a violent mob of people coming around this house and threatening violent gang rape. For a second, Lot is kind of commendable, goes outside to meet them, shuts the door and says, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. And you can see a couple of things here. Lot's being fairly brave to resist this mob, but it's interesting. He says they're his friends. I don't know if he's just trying to say that to try and get them on his side, but uh, they don't really seem like the type of people that Lot should be making friends with. Uh, But he has seemed to have gotten pretty in with this city. Uh, But then... Pretty quickly, Lot actually, I think, gives us the worst part of the story of all. I think in verse 8, he says, Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you, and you can do with them what you like. 
But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Apparently his daughters weren't under the protection of his roof, but I, I can't really even say anything about this. I mean, it's just, it's just shocking. It's, it's, I think it's right up there with one of the, one of the worst things that happens in the Bible. Uh, and, and this is Lot. He, he's actually the guy who's meant to kind of know about God's promises and, and actually be a believer. Uh, but there it is. Shocking, isn't it? In verse 9, uh, attention turns back to the men of the city. Uh, what do they say? Get out of the way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. And they kept bringing pressure on Lot and moving forward to break down the door. So it's a pretty tense situation. And the men of Sodom, they, uh, they seem to think that they live in a world of no justice, you know, where they can't be judged. You know, no consequences for anything. You know, who are you to judge Lot? You call us friends, you're not one of us. What a joke. Get out of the way. We're going to do whatever we like. <coughs> it's at this point, uh, remember the angels. The angels are there inside the, the house and they're trying to judge, remember? They're here to judge and trying to work out uh, what needs to be done. Uh, they decide that they've seen enough. And so they decide to step in. Uh, Lot probably thought he was protecting the angels, but uh, now he realises that they didn't need protecting. They can handle things. Uh, the men inside, that's the angels, they, they reached out and pulled Lot back, Lot back into the house and shut the door. Uh, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they could not find the door. And the two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons and lords, sons and daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry of the Lord against it is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. That's it. That's it. The decision has been made. The judgment has been made. The place is so evil. Something has to be done. The city is going to be destroyed. After this night, Sodom and Gomorrah is never going to be seen again. We're at the end of the story. We see God rain down burning sulfur on the city. Uh, there's questions about what exactly kind of that might have looked like. Scientists think uh, it could have been an earthquake, could have explained it uh, in a big landslide. Or, or there is also evidence that uh, around that time there was a massive sort of meteor that uh, had a big explosion and, and they found things in the area like superheated rocks that were heated to thousands of degrees and they think that something must have happened, possibly something with a meteor. Um, of course, it could have been something like that. It could have been something that we might say is much less natural, just, just something much more God just directly uh, intervening. It doesn't really make a difference which mechanism God uses to destroy Sodom. The, the mechanism isn't really the point. Whatever it was, it was pretty awful. Scientists will also tell you, or it might be more archaeologists, uh, I'm never too sure on the difference between some of these things. Uh, but there's evidence too, by the way, that it used to be a very fertile area around here. Uh, it's around the Dead Sea is the area we're talking about. You remember Lot actually wanted to go there and live there because the ground was so good, right? Uh, but even by the time you get to Roman times, so even 2,000 years ago, uh, you look at the records and the place was known for being desolate. It was actually known as a place you could go and you could find hunks of bitumen floating in the Dead Sea and it stank like sulphur. Uh, I think if you go to the Dead Sea today, it's still pretty bleak. Uh, certainly lots of salt. I don't know if anyone's been there. but Often we as Christians say things like, we don't want to be the fire and brimstone sort of Christians. Uh, and there's some truth in that. But the truth is that eventually, when wickedness is wicked enough, uh, God intervenes. He does judge. And it can be pretty brutal. Now, 
I just want to ask a couple of questions uh, about these cities and what we've read. <laughs> I don't know how you feel about all this. Uh, it is very intense, isn't it? Uh, there's, there's lots of different things going on. Uh, I want to ask a couple of questions, though. One question is, uh, and I want to try and talk about this briefly. It is uh, perhaps a little bit controversial, but there is a debate around this story uh, about what the sin of Sodom is, what the sin of Sodom is, what exactly they've done wrong. Uh, and there is a debate. Um, I'm going to try and talk about it sensitively. Uh, the debate is there particularly because over the centuries, you might know this, but because of this story, the word sodomy uh, really became used to, as a way of talking about uh, homosexual sex over the years. Uh, the two men came into the city and the, the crowd wanted to have sex with the two men. Uh, so lots of thinking over the years has been that the sin of Sodom is homosexuality. I don't uh, particularly think that's the case. Now, I, I do want to say that we do at Trinity believe uh, that God has designed sex for within marriage and we do believe in uh, those definitions of a marriage between a man and a woman. Uh, we do believe that if we're following God's way of life, we keep sex for the heterosexual marriage relationship. There are other parts of the Bible that uh, talk about that much more clearly. Uh, I don't believe it's really up for us to go and tell others what to do, but we do believe that if you're following God's way, we do think this is what it looks like to, to live God's way. Uh, but, but is Sodom about homosexuality? That's the question. Is Sodom about homosexuality? I don't especially think so. Certainly in Sodom, there's certainly lots of sexual immorality, right? I mean, this is a pretty awful thing that the men are doing. And homosexuality, homosexuality uh, may well be kind of part of that big thing that's going on. Uh, but actually, I think what we've read about it, it's much more about violence than anything else. I mean, this is violent. Gang rape, helpless people being attacked by a mob. I don't, I don't think you'd find anyone in 2021 around our city who would say that acting this way is okay. You know, this is an awful thing that's happened. And I think if we say, oh, it's just because of homosexuality, I think that can be uh, really unhelpful and quite dangerous, actually. I think Sodom's sin is about lots of things. Uh, it's certainly about violence. It's certainly about sexual immorality. Uh, in the book of Ezekiel, actually, another part of the Bible, it talks about what the sin of Sodom is, and it talks about, it actually lists quite a number of things. It lists pride, it lists gluttony, uh, it talks about lack of compassion, it talks about sexual immorality as well. Uh, the book of Jude in the New Testament will also talk about sexual immorality. Uh, so certainly, those are all part of Sodom's sin. Uh, my, my take is that with Sodom, it's not just like, here's the one thing. Uh, there's a whole... There's a whole bunch of ways in which they're not living God's way, particularly violence, particularly sexual immorality. Uh, but I don't personally think it's especially homosexuality, at least. Uh, maybe a different way to put it is if you actually want to talk about what Christians think about homosexuality, I would stay well clear uh, of this part of the Bible. I, I don't think this is the place to talk about it. This is a story of violence, aggression, an awful thing that's happened. Uh, but just to say it's about homosexuality, I think is a little bit, uh, a little bit lazy. Uh, second question. Second question, and I think uh, we have to talk about this because uh, it's easy to look back and look at these cities from 4,000 years ago and say, wow, those, those were such shocking times. I'm so glad that God did something to those people uh, thousands of years ago. But I actually think we have to ask the question, uh, we're in Adelaide in 2021, it's thousands of years later, uh, how much better are we than Sodom? How much better are we than Sodom? Because, well, okay, maybe we are a, a little bit better than Sodom, maybe we're not quite as violent, although... Stats on things like domestic violence might, uh, might come back on that. But I was also thinking this week about that little bit that we, um, that we read about how it was both the old men and the young men who came out for this, uh, this, this rape. I thought, oh, how awful that even the young men, and it does seem like they could have been as young as teenagers, were part of this. That's an awful thing. But uh, 
Uh, I was reminded this week that we live in a country where on average kids are first exposed to pornography at nine years old. And we haven't even come up with a sort of an age verification thing so we can at least try and, you know, protect the kids until they're adults. We might not have hundreds of men crowding rounds for these sort of aggressive uh, things like we've read about, but we, we do have hundreds of people in our city every night who log onto the internet uh, and view sexually explicit scenes from people who've been mistreated. Sexual assault, domestic violence, they are rampant in our community. And we also know that these things aren't just out there, they can well affect us here in the church as well. There's lots more we could say, but that question, are we any better than the people of Sodom, I, my answer would be maybe, maybe a little bit, but it's not clear, I don't think. And so there's a problem for us. We talked about it being good that God does do something, uh, that we actually do want justice, we do want God to act, and we talked about the idea that it's actually merciful that God steps in and does punish evil, but if the two angels were to visit our city today, what would their judgment be on whether we deserve punishment or not? Would it be some of our friends who are destroyed? Would it be some of us? And so there's a problem, isn't it? Isn't there? I'm really convinced that it's better if we have a God who does something about evil, a God who's prepared to judge, but at the same time, we also want a God who's going to show mercy. We want a God who's going to show mercy to us because we know that we're not perfect either. We know that we're just as much part of the chaos. So do we say, oh, do we want a God of justice or do we want a God of mercy? Which one's better? Which one do we want to choose? Well, thankfully, God does have an answer to this problem. And if you know the story of the Bible, we know that there's one place where God's justice and God's mercy comes together perfectly, and that's in the death of Jesus on the cross. At the cross, God showed perfect justice. He punished sin, put sin to death, but on the cross, he also turned away his punishment from those who didn't, didn't, did deserve it, and he put that punishment onto Jesus, showed mercy to those of us who trust in him and follow him. Two angels, two cities. I want us to spend the rest of our time now thinking about the three reactions, the three reactions from Lot and his family. Uh, I really think this help us, helps us Think about what it means to trust God, what it means to trust God to judge. And if we are going to follow God and trust him and receive his mercy, well, how might we trust him uh, to be a good judge? Uh, three reactions. There are three reactions, uh, all reactions we might have to God's judgment. They're not particularly good examples. These are really closer to bad examples from Lot and his family, but there is lots we can learn. Uh, these are the three reactions I think you see towards the end of the passage. Uh, we see Lot's son-in-law, sons-in-law, uh, they laugh. We see Lot himself, he hesitates, uh, and we see Lot's wife, she looks back. Uh, so we'll try and talk about each one, we'll try and move quickly. Uh, first of all, uh, let's jump back in and have a look at Lot's sons-in-law. Uh, the angels have just made up their mind, the city's going to be destroyed, uh, they've said this is it. They say to Lot, do you have anyone else? Get them out. God is going to judge, but he doesn't relish judging, he, he wants to rescue, this is a rescue mission, rescue as many as uh, he can. Uh, just like Lauren has illustrated earlier for, for us uh, with, I forgot the little dog's name, but there's a very cute rescue mission. Is there anyone else who can be saved, God says. And so verse 14, so Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to be married uh, to his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. 
Uh, how common is it that uh, people today, when we do talk about God's judgment, when we do talk about their idea of the idea of there being a God, uh, someone who does actually hold everyone accountable for what they've done, eternal consequences, eternal justice, how common is it when people hear those ideas uh, that people think of it as all a big joke? His sons-in-law thought he was joking. Very funny lot. A God who judges. Oh, that's just silly fairy tales. You're just trying to scare us lot. Well, we're not going to fall for it. It's very old-fashioned of you lot. Very, uh, very regressive, very inappropriate. These days, that's what we would say, isn't it? Even in the church, the whole idea of preaching fire and brimstone is seen as quite inappropriate. I think partly that's for good reasons, but... Uh, one thing to notice is that this is the Genesis 3 lie again. If you've been with us the whole time back in Genesis 3, you will not surely die. There won't be consequences. I can live however I want. How dare anyone judge me? It's the, the same lie that's right there at the start of the Bible. I don't think it's our job as Christians to judge those outside the church, by the way, but Lot's sons-in-law here are very much a warning for those who would quickly dismiss the idea of God's judgment. God made the world. He will one day put it right. You might remember earlier in the year, if you were with us, we went through part of the book of Luke. Uh, We looked at Luke chapter 17. And in that chapter, Jesus is talking about the day when he will come back to earth again. And hear these words of Jesus. Uh, Jesus says, it was the same in the days of Lot. People were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But the day Lot left Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just like this on the day the Son of Man is revealed. It'll be just like this. That's intense, isn't it? People will be joking, eating, drinking, thinking nothing is ever going to happen. But this is not a joke. Jesus is not joking. This is deadly serious. Jesus will come back. He will come to judge. He will put the world right. We want him to. We want the world to be put right. It's not necessarily going to be pretty. It's not a joke like Lot's sons-in-law thought. Uh, Lot's sons-in-law laughed. The second reaction is that Lot himself hesitated. Verse 15, with the coming of the door of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you'll be swept away when the city is punished. You kind of think Lot's going to get out of the city as fast as humanly possible, but he hesitated. When he hesitated... The men grasped, grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and of his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. One of the questions I've been thinking about this week is, why is Lot actually saved? You know, I've already talked about Lot quite a bit. You know, he's a lot of trouble. Uh, there's really no point in Genesis where, Genesis where he comes off well, uh, particularly bad today. Some of the stupid decisions he's, thing, he's done, uh, some of the awful things he's done. He's dumb, he's naive, offering his daughters to the angry mob. And we didn't read it today, I thought we had enough to deal with, but the last part of chapter 19, if you do want to go and read it, uh, it's the story of Lot in the cave with his daughters and there's drunkenness and there's incest, and it really is just gross. I think Lot is just a joke of a human being, really, just a disaster. You know, even, even just in these little couple of verses, you know, the angels tell him, get out of the city or you'll be destroyed. And he decides to hesitate. Now notice the angels actually, seems like they actually have to, I'm not sure if they actually tug him out or they just kind of take his hand and just, come on, Lot, come on, Lot, get out of here. Um, 
The weird thing is, why does this guy deserve to be saved? Even weirder, if you go to the New Testament and uh, the book of First Peter, uh, you'll find that Peter even calls Lot a righteous man. I don't normally disagree with the Apostle Peter, but to me he seems like a joke. So why was he saved? Well, the very last verse of our chapter actually does give us a clue. It says that God saved Lot because he remembered Abraham. Lot is Abraham's nephew, as we've said, so it seems partly that God saves Lot as a mercy, not a mercy to Lot, but a mercy to Abraham. Loves Abraham, he decides to save Abraham's nephew. And the truth is, Lot is not saved because he's a good guy. I think that's very, very clear. Lot's not saved because he deserves it. He's saved because God, for whatever reason, chooses to save him. God chooses to grab him, literally, grab him and drag him out of the city. Lot is righteous because God has chosen to save him and make him righteous. I think this is good news for us. Why? Well, partly because we're all a bit like Lot, aren't we? We do make stupid decisions, we hesitate, we want to trust God, but we love the things of the world a a bit too much sometimes. We sin the same way again and again and again, but Lot reminds us that we're not saved because we deserve it. We're not saved because we live great lives, we're saved because God has taken us and grabbed us and dragged us out of the city. What this shows us is that God is not the kind of God who's standing there saying, hey, no, I only want really, really good people, thank you very much. He's the kind of God who says, is there anyone else? Is there anyone else I can rescue? Anyone else you know? Anyone else I can drag out of the city? He wants to rescue. He wants to save as many as possible. He is on a rescue mission. I think actually this passage offers quite a little bit of hope. Hope for us when we fail. I also think it offers hope for, you know those people, I know lots of us have relatives who are like this or maybe friends or whoever it is. They don't really go to church. There might not be much evidence of God's work in their lives. They're not making smart choices. But we do know that actually they do seem to have a little bit of a faith. I never really know if someone has a real faith or not. God knows. But I think a lot of those people are maybe a little bit like Lot. Maybe it is only a tiny little bit of faith, a flicker of the faith. But by the end of it all, maybe God will grab them and pull them out of the city and save them. But at the same time, we do need to take Lot's hesitation as a warning. God's Call of salvation is not one to hesitate on. It's much better if we're ready, if we sort out our relationship with God, listen to him, trust him with everything, and give him our lives. Lot's uh, sons-in-law laughed. His, uh, Lot himself hesitated. But the very last one, uh, Lot's wife who looked back. Uh, let's have a look at verse 26. You would have noticed this part. Lot's wife looked back. And she became a pillar of salt. Uh, I've thought about this quite a bit this week. Uh, I remember being younger and kind of hearing this story and picturing um, in my mind sort of a lady running and then she sort of just glanced over her shoulder and that was enough. Poof, she was suddenly a pillar of salt. Uh, I don't actually think, thinking about it more deeply this week and reading about it, I don't actually think that's how we're meant to picture what happens here. One reason is if you go back to Luke chapter 17 again, you'll see that Jesus actually seems to say that Lot's wife didn't just look back, but that she turned back. Jesus compares her to people who uh, go back to get things on the day that the Son of Man returns. So I think it's better, better to picture something more like that. I think Lot's wife, Lot and his family are fleeing, and Lot, uh, Lot's wife, she looked back. And what that means is she wanted to go back and perhaps even went back. Maybe because she had forgotten things. Maybe because she couldn't you know, bear to leave that photo on the mantelpiece behind. Uh, maybe because 
uh, maybe because she just loved her life uh, back in Sodom. But I, I think probably what happened to her, by the way, I think probably she was fleeing, she went back, and I don't think she just magically turned into a pillar of salt. I think what happened is that she got hit by whatever disaster hit the town of Sodom, uh, and as part of that, her body would have eventually turned into salt. The whole area of Sodom and Gomorrah is covered in salt, and the Dead Sea, as you know, uh, is full of salt. I know sometimes back in the day you might hear this story and you might hear preaching that kind of talks about, you know, look forward, look to Jesus, don't take a glance back. Uh, but I think the real lesson from Lot's wife is about what we love, what we love. Lot himself hesitated at the idea of leaving Sodom behind. Lot's wife seemed to love Sodom so much that she went back. Christians do have to be careful. You do have to ask, do we love the things of the world so much that we can't bear to think of God's judgment? We wouldn't want to lose what we have. We don't want to say goodbye to the sin we enjoy, the lives that we've built. We love the things of the world so much that we might even be used to ignoring all the brokenness around us. We might actually think that this world's pretty great. Maybe we're too sheltered from how hard this life is for so many people. Well, there have been plenty of Christians over the years, Christian leaders even, uh, who said, I love this world too much. I can't talk about God's judgment. I I might even turn back and stop calling myself a Christian. What can I say? The whole idea of loving the world is not a bad thing. God loved the world so much that he came and died for it. But he understood that justice had to be done. And although although there are wonderful things about this world, when Jesus returns and judges and deals with evil, and gets rid of the chaos, things will be so much better. So don't love the world like Lot's wife loved it and couldn't let it go. Love the world like Jesus loved it. He loved it enough to die for it. He loves it enough to judge it. He loves it enough to put it right. It's not a right place at the moment. He's merciful enough to answer the prayers of those who cry out for justice. Lot's sons-in-law laughed. Lot hesitated. Lot's wife went back. The place where we should finish is asking the question, what will we do? Will we trust God? Will we trust that he's the one who knows how to judge? Will will we trust him to put this world right? Will we trust him to judge rightly and with mercy? Will we come to him and ask for forgiveness because we know that we're part of the chaos as well? I'm going to hand back to Daniel. Daniel's going to help us say together a prayer of confession now. Having thought about what we've thought about. I think it's right to confess our sins together and then we're going to sing together of God's forgiveness.